At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back to The Peripheral. On this episode, I delve into some things that I've always been fascinated by. The theme is not letting go and whether that be a near-death experience or letting others take control of your life and real quick i've been slacking on my thank yous to new patreon supporters so thank you shannon jennifer sarah Rhonda, christine haley michelle again i want to keep this podcast ad free and all your guys' support is definitely making that happen you're awesome our first story is from jess who i don't know any other way to put this but she attempted to take her own life and she lived through the experience i've always wanted to learn more about somebody who has flatlined or hear their story about a near-death experience to see if there was any hell i don't know anything on the other side Jess was very open about her experience. I think we had a great conversation. There are three interviews on this episode, so I'll introduce each one before each story starts. All right, so hi, I'm Jess. I live in Melbourne in Australia, and I'm 24 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess my story starts about five years ago when I was 19. Okay. I was going through a bit of a rough time mentally. Um, I'd been in and out of mental health hospitals and that sort of thing. I ended up attempting suicide and I guess being sort of successful with it. Um, I overdosed on Dothep and Seroquel. I think everyone pretty much knows what Seroquel is at this point. (laughs) It's a heavy tranquilizer and yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you know what Dothep is though. I'm not sure if they have it over there. No, I don't know what that is. It's very similar to amitriptyline. Okay. Also pretty heavy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Were you prescribed so, these two drugs? Yeah, I was. They were they okay. were prescription medications. Okay. So I took a lot of those, and I was living at home at the time, um, and I basically went and told my parents I was pretty angry at that point in general. So I guess I told them to somewhat upset them and freak them out. wasn't mm-hmm. really a cry for help, but... What did you say to them? Did you just say, I, I just took a bunch of pills? or? Yeah, something to that effect. It's it's a little bit hazy okay. because of all the medication that I took, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But they did call an ambulance. And I don't remember the ambulance arriving, but I do remember 
getting to the hospital on like the ambulance stretcher. Mm-hmm. And I remember I started to hallucinate pretty heavily at that point and I thought my cousin was at the hospital and I was talking to him like out loud and he wasn't there and I thought there was a cat on the end of my bed on the stretcher and I didn't have a cat so that was strange. Did you see Um, the cat or was it just like a weight feeling on your leg or something? No like I physically thought there was a cat at the end of my bed and I was trying to pat it and talk to it which is odd. And then the last hallucination I had was I thought the bed that I was on was on fire. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty intense, and that's the last thing that I remember. Mm-hmm. From what I've been told, I had a lot of seizures, and I flatlined for about four minutes, which is a bit intense. Yeah, um, that's a long time. Uh, yeah, I, it is a long time. How did they revive you? Um, I don't know. I've tried to talk to my mom about it a little bit, mm-hmm. but it was a pretty emotional time for everyone. So I, yeah. I kind of only get the bare minimum details from her, which is that they somehow got me back and I was put, I was intubated and put into an induced coma for a few days so I could recover. Mm-hmm. And then I remember waking up and I still had the breathing tube down my throat. Oh God, I can't even imagine. And, that was probably the worst experience ever, like worse than thinking my bed was on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it freaked me out a lot because I woke up and I couldn't breathe, but there was a device breathing for me and I had no idea what was going on. I was so disorientated and yeah, it was pretty scary waking up. I can't imagine what that feeling could have been like, something breathing for you. So you, you think you're gasping for oxygen, but you're not yeah you don't realize that it's breathing for you you just freak out because you can't breathe the way you would normally breathe I guess waking up however many days later you don't know what's going on or where you are or anything like that and your basic instinct is to just breathe normally you're kind of your last memory though before you flatlined was your bed was on fire yeah and do you think that that was just part of the the hallucination I mean do you, do you think you were conscious or was that just you in your own mind I think I was conscious I was still I knew I was still in a hospital and I knew I was on the stretcher okay. I just thought that that bed was on fire and I was on the bed but I knew where I was I just mm-hmm. like logically I couldn't get from one point to the other how it didn't make sense for a bed to be on fire in a hospital yeah so, and no one's yeah. trying to put the fire out they're just <laughs> doing their thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) I don't think I was really aware of what anyone else was doing or Mm -hmm. what was going on around me like I was I did know that I was in a hospital but the experience of thinking you're on a bed that's on fire is pretty overwhelming when you woke up what was your first thought um I don't know whether I had an actual first thought other than not being able to breathe Mm -hmm. and just panicking I, like obviously I was in an induced coma so I was probably on a lot of medication mm-hmm. and yeah I don't know whether I was really in the right frame of mind to have any intellectual thoughts of any kind other than just panic. I remember not being able to breathe and the tube in my throat and pretty much when, the extent of it. When you finally were able to wake up 
and either understand what's happened or go home and reflect were you happy I was yeah in the months that followed I was I was actually a lot better I had a really really troubled youth and early adulthood when I was in and out of mental health hospitals and I was very sick mm-hmm. not that I'm supporting suicide in any way but for some reason that worked for me and it kind of reset my brain I think that's how it felt I didn't I wasn't overwhelmed with sadness anymore and I wasn't suicidal I was yeah I was kind of okay after that I can kind of see how a near-death experience would would change somebody's perspective and whether it be intentional or unintentional I know people that use heavy uh, doses of psychedelic drugs to obtain that near-death experience. They think they're dying, and then they, they don't. And it's almost like going on a roller coaster to be scared, but it's safer, quote-unquote. You know, if, if somebody's going through their, their life, and then they get into a car accident, and they somehow live through it every moment of their life they cherish because they didn't appreciate it before that car accident. And it sounds like you appreciated your life after this because you lived and now you can kind of see the value in everything. Yeah, I definitely did. And it was, it was a pretty big wake up call, Mm -hmm. especially to how sick I was and I was, how I was, I was treating people and it was terrible. I didn't realize the things that I was doing and the way I was acting. And yeah, all of a sudden after the the attempted suicide, I was able to see all of that yeah. and somehow work through it. So I'm glad something good came out of it. Uh, I just, I, I, I guess my initial thought might've been that you were disappointed that it didn't work. I'm not sure if I was disappointed. I don't know how dead set I was on making the attempt successful. I don't think I really knew what I was doing in taking all of the medication that I was doing. Mm -hmm. I knew it would do something, but I didn't know whether or not it would kill me. I don't think that that was really what I was going for at that time. I mean, it might have been. It's really hard to say. It's all very fuzzy and hazy. So, Well, I mean, you're, you're young. You've been through a lot. You're angry. Yeah. You're lashing out and you're doing, uh, spontaneous instinctual things so you're harming yourself but you're not really considering all of the consequences yeah there was definitely no no thought process behind it obviously you don't remember anything from when you were actually flatlined but is there any sense of the beyond to you do you I mean or is it just a utter appreciation for life now um I don't think i I was aware of anything after it, Mm -hmm. to be honest, it just felt like going to sleep and waking up the next day. It was that kind of feeling like no dreams, no nothing. Just, Mm -hmm. I was there one minute and then I woke up another minute kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wouldn't say that I thought there was anything after. I'm just intrigued by that. I've never talked to anyone that's (laughs) been brought back. So I I just, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't a negative feeling. Like, it wasn't like I'd gone to sleep and woken up and I'd had a bad dream that I couldn't remember. It wasn't like that. Yeah, it was just very neutral, very 
they're one minute somewhere else the next and wow. not necessarily any bad or good feelings in the middle. Were you completely disoriented though? Like, did you remember, I mean, obviously when you woke up, you were freaked out with the breathing tube and everything, but did it all come back to you pretty quick? Why? You yeah, pretty quickly it did. Um, especially the hallucinations right before, I guess I started seizing and everything mm -hmm. that was very, very prominent in my mind, in my memory as soon as I woke up. Mm -hmm. So I did weird. remember the, the very before flatlining isn't it kind of weird how vividly you can remember something like that when it's happening i mean it, you know you don't remember dreams very well you don't remember a lot of things in life they get hazy but you absolutely remember these hallucinations yeah they were they were something that i'll probably never forget mm -hmm. and i mean two of the hallucinations were fine they were fine like i love my cousin I think cats are cool. <laughs> the, yeah, the fire in the bed one was not that great, but I mean, the others were fine. But yeah, it is interesting that I don't remember, like I don't remember the ambulance getting to the house or being in the ambulance, but I do really, really remember those. With all that's happened since then, you're working, you're doing, it sounds like you're doing pretty good. I guess where were you, you were living at home and now, now what are you doing? Um, so I was I was in and out of home from when I was about 18 up until this point. I was back at home after being in a couple of mental health hospitals. And then I think I stayed at home for another few months. And then I ended up moving out about six months after this incident. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a cat, which was interesting. <laughs> Did it look like the so... one in your dream or your hallucination? <laughs> no, not at all, but... <laughs> It actually did help a lot. I think pets are really great for recovering. Yeah. Um, they're a, a form of therapy in my mind, and that really helped. I went on to be fine. I had a couple of like psychologist appointments and that sort of thing along the way. I had a couple of complications after. Um, I got a blood clot in my neck from having a central line in my neck, so... I had to be on blood thinning medication and do a lot of follow-up appointments with the doctor and that sort of thing. But all in all, considering I should have been significantly brain damaged from that, I was pretty good. Wow. I'm just happy to hear that you, you came out almost ahead after the fact and was able to move out of your parents' house and, and get on with your life. And, and it's almost like a reset switch for you. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like it was. It was, yeah, a really shitty thing to happen. And the year or so before it was really, really rough. But it got a lot better a lot quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Not that I would recommend anyone give that a go as a way of making things better for themselves. Because no. it was really awful. And, yeah, it was really, really hard on everyone that I loved and all my family. So yeah. Now when you have holidays and stuff is everyone a lot more loving and caring and no more family bickering and stuff or um a little bit they they were all really really forgiving of how I treated them and because they knew that I was sick and I was going through some things but still I feel like for them they walk on eggshells a bit around me they still feel like I'm that fragile person from before mm. and I've tried to explain that I'm not like I've I've moved into state now. I, I used to live in Queensland and I've moved to Victoria to be with my partner now. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, my family's still still very aware of how they talk to me and and what they say around me. So they're always going to be that way, and it just sucks because that's that's what they know and that's what they've been around, and and you can tell them a hundred times, "I'm fine now," and let's just get on with it. But they're they're always going to have that in the back of their mind, and it's because they love you and they care about you. And that's, that's where yeah. they're coming from, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think something that was very hard for them to wrap their heads around is after, after the incident, I guess we'll call it, uh, my memory was really, really bad. My memory from, from prior to ODing is very, very, very fuzzy. Um, I don't really remember a lot of my childhood and I don't have a lot of things that I remember from being with different members of my family. Most of the stuff that I think I remember is just stories that I've heard over and over and I can't really work out whether I remember it or whether I've just heard it so many times. So that was pretty hard for them to understand because they felt so close to me for all these different reasons and I couldn't remember why. Yeah. I, I have a hard time remembering my childhood too, but it, I guess I just block it out because there was nothing of interest there. <laughs> yeah, I think it happens to a lot of people. So, When you were in and out of these institutions, what what would they do for you at a, a, a mental hospital? I was in two different private mental health hospitals mm-hmm. and I was inpatient in both of them. So... Um, basically I would, I would live there. We would have different therapies. Sometimes you'd have one-on-one sessions with your therapist and sometimes you'd do group therapies and it was not that fun. You were living with a lot of other people that were really sick. And the main thing I remember is they were really strict on meal times. You had to have like breakfast, lunch and dinner plus like morning tea and afternoon tea every single day. Like you always had to eat at those times. And I'm guessing that was probably because there were people there with eating disorders and that sort of thing. But that's what stands out most to me, I guess, the weird (laughs) mealtimes. You have to have tea now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, really strange. Yeah, I mean, I think they work for some people. They didn't work for me. I had a lot of conflicts with the staff members and stuff. And in the final one that I was in, I was in and out of it. I was like, we were allowed to go out during the day and come back during the night and yeah, it was kind of pointless, me being there at all in the end. So That makes sense. And I'm sure that it does help a lot of people to have that regiment, yeah. uh, regimented day. Um, I, I had another guy come on who pretty much said AA didn't work for him. And a lot of people got mad because, you know, they were like, oh, you know, you're talking bad about AA. And I'm like, no, he just said it didn't work for him. <laughs> yeah. <know>? <laughs> Yeah, no, I get that it would work for some people and it wouldn't work for others. It's same with everything, really. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I kind of thought you'd have more questions about, like, whether there was an afterlife and that sort of thing. But that was really just the one. I guess that kind of covers it when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, you, you were like, nah, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was neutral and no. there was. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you didn't shut me down. I was just like, oh, she answered it. You know, it's, that's fine. I get it. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I had a cool story about, I don't know, seeing some kind of weird figures or something. That would have been nice. but Or a light or a tunnel or whatever people yeah. say they see. Yeah, it would have been cool to have some kind of experience, I guess, but yeah. it was just nothing for me. I'm not really sad. 
anymore. Mm-hmm. I was recently diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. which I think might have helped if I was diagnosed with that a little bit sooner. younger. Yeah, just a little sooner yeah. in life, yeah. <laughs> And it is a bit daunting because I'm now on Seracool as a medication again. Uh, so I think that's probably why I did end up writing to you about it because it is, it's almost a constant reminder of what happened because I have to take it every day. Mm-hmm. But it does help and I definitely think it's the right thing. And my doctor was happy prescribing it again because I'm not at all suicidal anymore and she knows that. So, yeah. yeah. A happy ending. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I got a cat. And that was really cool. So. <laughs> I got a cat. Okay, so be honest, but uh, if I ever came to Australia, are yeah. there big ass spiders everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yes. Yeah, oh, there really are. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a scary place. <laughs> even in like the cities. Yeah, even in the in the cities, they're everywhere. They're like in little crevices and stuff. <laughs> Everywhere has crevices. Trying to get my wife to come out there, and she's like, "No, have you seen their goddamn spiders?" And I'm like, eh. <laughs> "I'm like, yeah." My not... partner's obsessed with like talking about how we have like the most dangerous animals in I don't know, however many, whatever the list is. We're at the top of pretty yeah. much all of them. Yeah, you have like the most deadly ants and wasps and and all kinds and the biggest spiders in the world. Yeah. Mm. It's a fun place to live. Hopefully your cat protects you. <laughs> she does. She does. It's actually so funny. She loves playing with like moths and spiders and stuff. And we just got a little bunny uh-huh. and she's like shit terrified of the bunny. <laughs> like she'll kill anything else, bugs, insects, whatever. Yeah. But the bunny she is so scared of. All right, cool. Well, thanks for talking. I look forward to hearing the episode. And yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Jess. After my interview with Jess, she sent me a follow-up, adding a few more details about her story. She explained that the paramedics and doctors were unable to pump her stomach because the drugs she had taken had absorbed too quickly into her system. The way the paramedics were able to revive her was with electric shock. She also elaborated on her stay at the mental health facilities Not only were they very particular about mealtime, but they kept her heavily sedated, and that was their solution for any issue or problem happening with patients. Next up, we have Sean from New York, who was put in a medically induced coma. He was kept in that state for 10 days. Here is Sean's story. Hello. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Not bad. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I guess the story that I just wanted to bring to the table was originally just about the experience I think a lot of people probably have, but not too many people wind up talking about, which is when you wind up in the ER, let alone the ICU in the hospital, being a first timer in that situation which is pretty um, off-putting, pretty incredible. And a lot of times you might not uh, know you're even in the situation until you wake up in the situation. That's even scarier because you... So what what happened to you? What what went wrong with you? Well, I um, wound up with a case of acute pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of probably a bad thing for me, but I guess I've learned that I have probably a high pain threshold. Mm -hmm. 
So um, maybe something that somebody would be curled over for and, you know, somebody's like, hey, you have to go to the doctor for this. Yeah, you get I both might, take you to the hospital and, right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, you call them an ambulance. Yeah, I was. Uh, no, I can get through this. And by the time I was going to the doctor, they're like, OK, you need to go to radiology. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I went to radiology, they were like, OK, this is you need to check yourself into the emergency room. And New York City, you know, everything's close. They're like, oh, well, you know, just walk yourself there. And I'm like very aware of the $3,000 charge that it is to just have a, an ambulance involved in anything in New York City. So I'm like, okay, you know, it's just another 15 blocks, you know, hop in a cab or walk, walk over there, walk until I get a cab and then yeah. uh, on my way. So you, you were told to go walk to the er and did you walk that 15 blocks well, well no they, <laughs> okay. were, they were like you need to go to the er uh-huh. and i was like well you know it's the summertime i kind of took it upon myself i was like i'll walk until i get a cab mm-hmm. they weren't you know hold the phone we're calling an ambulance again i think it's probably the okay. uh pain tolerance you actually conducting made... myself pretty well okay so <laughs> I, I just didn't know if you actually made it there on your own or not no i did okay cool. and um into the ER and that was no problem and then by the time I get up to where people are really starting to look at me there are a lot of doctors in the room Mm -hmm. I was in a lot of pain and I knew that you know things probably weren't right I was under for about 10 days um yeah the next thing I remembered was waking up probably about 10 11 days later Oh, wow. Um, I had to be intubated, and they put me under and put me into a medical coma, like a medically induced coma. I only learned about this many, 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 many days later. Mm -hmm. But I guess I got so close to um, the state where they would have needed to perform surgery, but without actually having to perform surgery. So they kind of kept me on watch to make sure that my system was balanced and everything was happening as it should. But they, they actually had to medically induce a coma because your system was in such a, a state of shock from this pancreatitis. Yeah, it was, it was actually affecting the rest of my system. Mm-hmm. The, the other organs were being affected and I was just severely dehydrated. It was also the middle, the middle of the summer. God, probably like the second half of August in New York. So it's just brutal and heat. Yeah. <laughs> brutal, brutal, like 90 degree days, you know, and that kind of a situation didn't help matters any at all. When you were admitted to the ER, do you remember everything leading up until the point they put you under? I remember waiting in the ER. I remember being put on a bed and being taken up. Uh, for further studies and evaluation. I remember um, a lot of people starting to circle around me in the room. I do remember a few of those people being there the whole time, Mm -hmm. uh, probably through the end of everything. But that's when things started to slip away. And that's when things started to get weird. And that's when things started to turn into... I may or may not be in um, an alternate version of 
Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite movies. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so what? Yeah. What? Just uh, I guess give us a synopsis of what went down. What did you? Were you hallucinating, or were you seeing? somewhat reality but it was skewed or do you think you were just in your own head you know that's where the the trouble really comes the first thing that i remember after waking up is being asked do you know where you are do you know what day it is and i knew where i was but i kind of said a different answer i was all like oh yeah you know in the east village at the hospital and blah 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 and the date was off as well Um, and I had this whole story playing in my head, like my dad and my dad is actually an ex trucker. And I had this story that my dad was old trucker friends with this guy from Chinatown and, um, he owed him a favor from back in the day. And that, you know, when this thing was all over, they were going to throw me a big party. But then I also got pulled into the party in the middle of it. And I think that's when they like maybe were rushing me into another room for something because a lot of the people that were around me um, were people who I recognized later, mm-hmm. but I was on the bed and we were just supposed to bust into this Chinese restaurant and surprise everyone like, Oh, Hey, it's Sean. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, it was very, I mean, many levels. And then this this guy that my dad was friends with, I think his name was Mr. Kung Pao, not to be, you know, overly subliminally racist or anything. But he also delivered these huge, like, gift baskets to the hospital in different themes. And the theme that time was that they were these big uh, tool, you know, like what you have in the garage. It's like a, you know, a tool chest. Every drawer that you would open would have, like, iPads or, like, candy or, like, other stuff. Oh, he sends these through for, like, the patients in the ICU, and you just see them sitting in the hall. I guess those were never there. That was, like, the first of many things that I think were never there. Just all in your head. Just you're you're misinterpreting something, but it's just... Oh, yeah, you're misinterpreting something, or I'm still not really clear if that was maybe from part of the dream state that maybe blended with an awake state. I guess they told me I was coming off a lot of opiates when I was waking up. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing where, you know, you're kind of coming out of la-la land, and then you hear something like that, and you're like, okay, now I know that, you know, that's why they're asking you, do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know what day it is? Do you know what date it is? Mm -hmm. It's... And at that point, you're like, okay, I, I got to get this together. Especially, I mean, I've not really been experienced with any opiates or like hard drugs mm-hmm. ever to say. Maybe like a hallucinatory trip briefly with mushrooms or something, but not any like anything on the grade that they were giving you. Yeah. Do you think all these hallucinations were at the tail end of the coma or spread across? From beginning to end it's hard to say because it feels like some of them are more attached to the first end and some of them are more closely linked to waking up okay. um as part of the chinatown saga it seems like 
there was one memory that I have very vividly where my father was trying to, you know, he had the connections with the Chinatown underworld. He was trying to usher me down into this underground lab where they were essentially doing health care for people who didn't have papers or proper health care. And, oh, and you know, this guy owed my dad a favor, so okay. they were helping me through mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, There was a very particular memory I have where it's like, at one point they were pouring almost like a rubber-like liquid down my throat to take a mold, and I saw them slicing one open at the same time, sort of. And I think that might have been when I was being um, extubated. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to tell just because, you know, going in, going out of the whole experience. And, and just to it, clarify, your father wasn't there. You were there by yourself. And, and he was there. Oh, he was. He came. Okay. And he was there with me. Okay. Um, my father and my mother came and my boyfriend came. Mm-hmm. And they were all there pretty much the whole time. Well, that's good. I'm glad they were there because you were dying <laughs> you should be essentially by, yeah it was it was you know 10 days in the icu mm-hmm. being in a medically induced coma it was not as close to living as it was yeah. probably it's dying did your partner or your parents say that they spoke to you when you were in your coma they did yeah do you have any recollection i don't really have recollections of hearing things from them at that point, the story began to unfold much more after I realized I was awake and back amongst the living. Mm-hmm. I think most of the dream state was kind of my father's interactions with the Chinese underground <laughs> and kind of making this whole crazy thing. He, he planned a big party for me. Where, you know, it was like on the second floor above a restaurant mm-hmm. where they had, you know, LED lit rivers flowing of champagne or something. And you could sprinkle powder into it and it would fizz up, you know, crazy kind of dream stuff. But that all seemed to play into a story. Yeah. But that sounds up awesome. Up to a certain point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, well, wait, can we still have the party, though? <laughs> You're like, let's, let's make this a reality. Come on. Yeah. So you wake up, you do not have your bearings about you. You're trying to figure out where you are. Was it scary to you? Like, could you remember that? The bearings are not there. I did immediately kind of recognize where I was. Um, I kind of remembered the situation leading up into that. There was pain. That was certainly an issue, which for... You know, being able to tolerate a bit of pain, that says something. Mm -hmm. It took a while for them to figure out the pain aspect because morphine wouldn't work on me. And I think they gave me another option after that. And that also did not really work on me. And then I think they ended up with Dilaudid. And that worked okay. This whole time, this is when you start to come around. You start to realize the people that are around you. You get very thankful for the people that are there around you. You start to really wonder, like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. You don't may you probably might not have all of your wits about you at this point. You know, you're, you're getting, like, 
shots. You're getting your bags changed on your IV drip unit. You're getting, you take these pills, do this. And that starts to really put a crease in your mind. You're like, okay, the second that you start to realize where you are, you're trying to be in control of yourself. That's not really what the staff thinks might be the best option for you. So the more questions you ask, you know, the simpler answers they want to give you. Uh And this is really where the big kind of mind fuck came in for me was, oh my God, if I give them the wrong date when they ask me, do I know what day it is? If I give them the wrong answer, they're asking me, you know, anything. If I refuse to eat food because I think it's nasty, it's, you know, are any of these things going to be cause to keep me in here longer? Are these things going to be counted against me? And at that point, it kind of starts to feel like you're more in a prison. And there were a few posts, like after I woke up, there were a few experiences that I had that were... um, still very visceral there's one woman who was in a quote-unquote corner room next to me and i just could hear her nails as she would try to climb up the curtains in the room she was demanding to know who was in my room to the people who were working in the hospital and they were trying to keep her in restraints they were trying to tell her whatever she needed to hear. And I, I mean, I really don't think I have a narcissistic point of view or personality, but this woman just, she was like, what do you mean? Is he one of these, like, is he a fucking Jew? Is he, you know, is he one of these like Middle Eastern people's children that you put in here and you give them preferential treatment and you take care of them and before you start taking care of someone like me? It was really very real at that point to me. Mm -hmm. And still I can, you know, hear her climbing up the curtains and rattling the chains on the wall and trying to like get out of her situation. And you're freaked and... out that she might actually get free and come over and attack you. Oh my God. I'm like, <laughs> if they can't properly apprehend her and keep her restrained, I'm like sitting in a bed. I can't move. I can't even get up out of bed to go to the bathroom at this point. Like I'm dead meat, you know, <laughs> if, if there were to be a threatening situation. And I remember my mother being in the room with me at that point. I remember my boyfriend being in the room with me at that point. Mm -hmm. I had tears in my eyes. I was like, please let me get out of here and then let this never happen again. Mm -hmm. Like, please. And Did they confirm that, that that woman was real and screaming? I can't remember at the time, but that was something that I ended up bringing up a couple months later, after the fact, in like more like passing conversation, like, oh yeah, like that crazy bitch who was climbing up the walls to try to get at me. And my man was like, babe, that never happened. You know, she wasn't real, right? <laughs> oh, wow. And so this is something that has very far reaching effects. Yeah. And that was just like one of the things. I mean, sometimes if I couldn't sleep properly, which 
nobody can in the ICU because it's the intensive care unit and you're in New York City. So it's everybody coming in from major ER things. So you have um, alarms going, all the bells and whistles. It's like bleep, blop, bloop, and it's like emergency, emergency. You know, it's 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 one thing after another, twenty four hours a day, and you cannot sleep. So then they have to give you medication to sleep a little bit more. I'm assuming you're hooked up to stuff yourself and that's not very comfortable to try to sleep with, you know, whether, no, 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 no. And it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't even in my own room because in the ICU, they just basically have curtains separating you. And I was like, well, what happened when I took off my clothes, when I checked into here and like, didn't I have a room then? Can I go back to my room? And they're like, no, you don't have a room. You're in the ICU. And it took me quite a bit to even understand that. And so um, one of the things that my boyfriend brought up was that it's pretty common for people to have onset ICU delirium. And I looked this up. Yeah, after I was like, what is that? <laughs> I looked, well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get in touch with you in the first place is because I feel like this is something where they talk about it more with old people. And not to call anybody old people, but mm. I'm only 35, yeah. and this happened to me a year ago. Uh, I guess it happens generally with people over 50 who mostly get uh, brought in f- from heart attacks or other complications. I, After doing a little research, I found that it's about 75% of people who get brought into the ICU end up being diagnosed with ICU delirium. Which, based on if they have to be uh, intubated, if they have to be on a ventilator, they end up having very similar symptoms of hallucination. They might not always be able to communicate so well. Sometimes they're like over-concerned about themselves. Sometimes they lash out against people. Sometimes they just shut down and they're super quiet because people don't know how to deal with this stuff. I mean, everybody probably has a different... um, mechanism of how to deal with giving up complete self-control to the people around you. And of course, you know, they're asking you questions or they're putting stuff in you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't answer the right question, or if you ask the wrong question while they're putting stuff in you, it's, you know, it can lead to worse stuff for you. Well, yeah, are at you the end of the are, day. are you allergic to penicillin? No, and you totally are. <laughs> like, can, well, what's say to I mean, yeah. they usually find those things out beforehand yeah. and don't make, you know, crazy mistakes like that. Yeah. But um well, if you're alone especially because I had people with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have like a record, but if you're alone and have to deal with that, I can't even imagine. There are oftentimes uh very hasty diagnoses of people over 50 who might just be in a bout of ICU delirium being diagnosed with dementia. And they will have those people involuntarily sent to like a nursing home situation to be taken care of. And you would hope that they would figure that out, even if they are sent there after a few days, the fog clears and they can think again and 
be more alert you would hope that they would address that but yeah it's a, it all completely depends on the situation it's like do you have other people there caring for you do you have people to help make these decisions don't you um it's that was the scariest thing for me it's like you know they come up and i hadn't slept i don't know in maybe 24 hours and they give you a gas mask with something in it that I don't know. I recognize the fact that this particular gas that they gave me, I did not want to do again, but they gave it to me again. And they were like, no, 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 just do the whole thing. And afterwards, uh, the whole room would take on a cast of chartreuse green. And then everything would get even weirder after that. Some of those episodes, I mean, it got s and <laughs> It got, I mean, I don't know if I was hallucinating. I don't know yeah. what to believe. I mean, months later, after so many things that were so vivid that you go back and discuss with your family and friends who were there with you and very close with you the whole time, mm-hmm. and they confirmed, you know, babe, that was not a part of your existence at that point. <laughs> you kind of start to second guess a little bit about all of the other things, no matter how vivid they may or may not be as well. It's such a paradigm shift when you have this memory that's very real to you and somebody else says, no, it, that didn't happen. And, but I saw it, you know, it's, well, no, the first reaction is, Hey, stop fucking with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like that was a, the, one of the more crazy experiences I had in the whole time we were there. And then I'm really sorry to, I mean, it's awkward for both parties for them to realize as well Mm -hmm. that you really thought that was going on in the moment. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, because your mind can go crazy places. I I remember my my grandmother was in the ER, the ICU, and we were talking to her and she said, is the nurse in the black dress and black balloons going to come back? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't think she's coming back. <laughs> oh yeah. But she said there was a nurse that was dressed in all black and had uh, balloons and they were all black too. That's a crazy thing. And I've been reading a lot about um, hospice care mm-hmm. and how people have started to use like psilocybin mushrooms Absolutely. To help ease people out. And that's something I've been really intrigued with because, I mean, anytime I've had one of those experiences, it's been nothing but joyful. And it's kind of takes you to another place and you have a different level of understanding of things. I feel like anything that I have ever done with that always relates back to the real world. And I can, I always have a grasp on it. Whatever they're pumping into you in the hospital, you don't know what it is. You don't give them permission to do it. At that point, you're completely signed over. And I can honestly say from the care that I had, these people had nothing but the best intentions. And they were nothing but delightful as soon as I came around. I really apologize for everything before that. (laughs) It's just... it's. One of the most embarrassing things, you know, being in a situation where you can't get up and use the bathroom or... Yeah, there's no humility there. You just, just, like, don't know, you know, 
how to answer a question. It's beyond. You're you're useless, and you're literally have to have other people do everything for you because you can't do anything and you don't ever want to put that much responsibility on another person but you have no choice exactly and it was to the point where after 10 days of being under i had to you know get up and learn how to walk again so i had to go through crazy physical therapy because i was completely atrophied Mm -hmm. but but by the point that i was ready to do that I was like, get me the fuck out of this bed. Get me the hell out of this hospital. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to answer any more questions. I was asking every single nurse, every time they came to like with a new needle or a new pill or a new yeah. dose of something, I'm like, hey, what is this? What is it supposed to do for me? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's crazy to just think that you're supposed to sit there and be cared for and not not do that, you know? Well, they bring you a, an aspirin in a cup. That's like fifty dollars, you know. Yeah, thank thank God I have decent health insurance through this whole thing because. How much did it cost you? It could have ruined my entire life. Yeah. Um, it ended up costing me about all said and done around under a little under four thousand dollars. Not bad for t- over ten days in a coma and and everything. That's. But no. Yeah. It was just such a mind fuck and. You know, you lose the weight, you have to learn how to walk again, you finally get to the point where you can bring yourself home. Yeah, like two weeks later, as crisp of a memory as could be, and you just bring it up in casual conversation to someone who was sitting right there next to you, and they give you that look, and you just completely understand that you... That's just another one of those things that never even happened. I'm sure how I'm sure it's frustrating as hell because you're just it's so real to you. Yeah, and it's it's strange to me too that nothing crossed over ever between any pre-existing recurring dreams that I've had or any dreams that I've had since that I can remember. It was really like a composited kind of wrapped up little package of what that whole experience was and it stayed there but i those memories and experiences are much more vivid than like a recurring dream that i've had since i was a kid say it is and i was looking some things up because you know you mentioned uh near-death experience and i looked up most of what you can readily find at your fingertips about near-death experiences and, I, well, I don't think I got all the way there. But I found out a lot more about the ICU delirium. Yeah. I had and no idea that was a thing. They, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's a, it's a huge thing. It's a huger thing than I even thought it was. And they're saying um, one of the things on the back end that's an interesting fact is I think they said around 70 to 80% of people who experience ICU delirium actually go on to either have symptoms of PTSD or also like a higher onset or like earlier onset of uh, similar symptoms like Alzheimer's or dementia, other like dementia. Yeah. If they've been in that situation in the first place, which is, you know, not such a great thing, but I, I don't know how many people 
younger than 50 they're doing these statistics on, but looking at that and being 35, I'm like, oh, great, you know, (laughs) I'll be here for another 15 years and then put me in the loony bin. I don't know. (laughs) I would hope not. And if it's any of those things, there are, oh, God, I, I don't remember what they're called, but there's like supplements and things that people say help immensely. Also, I, I've heard some people refer to Alzheimer, Alzheimer's, I can't even say the word right now, as stage three diabetes. So if you wow. cut your sugar intake massively, just cut it out, just cut sugar out of your diet as much as you can, you can reverse some, some people can reverse diabetes if it's like the onset of it. For them to refer to it as stage three diabetes, I'm like, whoa, what, what are yeah. we doing to ourselves with this food? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't know if any of this is, you know. But. Well, no, I just, when I stumbled across all of this, I, I was very surprised about all of the studies that uh, you can readily find available. Multiple medical journals just talking about ICU delirium. And most of the things that you find are all catered toward the family members and friends who may witness someone experiencing ICU delirium Mm -hmm. as, I guess, like a post-survivor of that. I think it's interesting that there's really not much of a resource of knowing that that's what maybe you went through or you never know that you're going to end up in the ICU. That's a thing. Yeah. But um, for me, I mean... I thought of maybe a little education, a little, you know, if you ever wind up in the emergency room or the ICU, you know, these sorts of things might happen to you because this is the first time I've really wound up in the hospital and there were there was just a lot of learning from it. And I'm sure a lot of people have been in the same situation and yeah. I don't know if they have similar stories or bigger, better Lesser, worse, uh, <laughs> probably all of them. Well, I didn't even know that was a thing, ICU delirium. Also, you, no one plans to be in the ER. No one plans to get arrested. No one plans to a, a lot of things in life. Yeah, so, and I think I think <laughs> one of the main factors for me, at least after when I woke up, was when you're in the ICU, if they need to keep you in the ICU, you're still in the ICU. And that's, you know, again, all those bells and whistles are going off 24 hours a day. You don't get sleep. So no matter how good you're doing otherwise, they're still putting you under to get your sleep. And then they wake you up again. However they do that, I don't know. (laughs) And they got to wake you up a few times in the night, too. It's just they're always poking and prodding you. So it's just to make sure you're alive. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like hell to me. It It sounds like torture. Yeah. It's 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 pretty torturous. I would not recommend it if you can stay away. Oh. I would advise. <laughs> but no, that's that's incredible, man, and I'm I'm so happy that you shared that. Uh, I hope you, I didn't interrupt you too much. I was <laughs> I was just no. curious about all these different things you were saying. I'm like, what? But what about that? <laughs> well, no matter. Okay. And it's just <laughs> nice to get it out. Yeah. Nice to talk. So awesome, man. Thanks um, for everything. Yeah. For this last interview, 
we're going to switch gears a bit. I speak with Lucy, who talks about her mother being sectioned. The government took custody of her and placed her in a facility. We're going to focus on how the facility treats its patients and treated her mother-in-law. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, not too bad. I'm trying to amp up the Britishness for you, so I'm <laughs> so more exotic. Introduce yourself, and then we'll we'll jump right in. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm Lucy, and um, I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to call her my mother-in-law, but we're not married yet. But just for ease, I'm just going to say mother-in-law because future mother-in-law is just too much of a mouthful, really. Um, and I've been with my partner Luke for five years now. We've gone through the process of my mother-in-law being sectioned while we're together. So that's really what I'm talking about. Um, but I'll start from the beginning, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, and tell you a little bit a little bit about her condition and kind of how she ended up getting sectioned. Mm-hmm. So she's got, um, it's almost like schizophrenia, but it's classified as schizoaffective disorder. So that's her diagnosis. She's had quite a lot of diagnoses during her life, but her one at the moment is schizoaffective disorder. She's had five children. Um, she's got a level of learning difficulties as well. Um, So she's got twins. They've both got learning difficulties as well, just to add to kind of (laughs) the complexities. Um, And then she had triplets, one of which is my partner, Luke, and he's got a twin. And then the other one died when when it was about four months old. And that sort of triggered a bit of a breakdown. So from that point, she deteriorated quite a lot and kind of had a lot of mental health issues. So when I met Luke, he was living with his mother-in-law, and the two sisters with learning difficulties. And they had carers coming in quite a lot. And Luke provided a lot of the care. And then obviously we got together and I came on the picture. And after about a year, we wanted to move in together. So he moved out. One of the daughters moved into a flat as well. The mother and one daughter were just left um, in the house. Um, And that was working fine. They had carers coming in. You know, they would go out shopping everything sort of worked well for a while. And then the window got smashed by a vandal. It was someone that Luke's other sister, so the twin, knew. So that was sort of significant in terms of them linking it to family members and saying, you know, this bad thing's happened and it's almost like you knew about it. So the police asked for my mother-in-law and the daughter that she lived with to come and stay with us um, at our house. And it was just a really difficult period. So Luke's sister, who was staying with us, and the mother, um, I think I said something stupid like, are you sure you want some more dinner? (laughs) And um, she just didn't take it well and started having a bit of a tantrum. And she's known for these tantrums. I mean, she's 36, but she's got a level of learning difficulties. And she had a tantrum and she was just really upset. And then Luke's mother-in-law became quite aggressive in response to that because she kind of picks up on what's going on around her quite a lot. Luke had to restrain his mother to stop her sort of running out into the street. I mean, it was just an awful night, to be honest. I was trying to get an essay done. They'd come to stay with us. We were trying to help them out by being a support. And obviously they were scared because the window had been broken. We wanted to offer somewhere safe. And then obviously they started becoming aggressive and we, we just didn't know what to do. We tried phoning a company called Outreach who deal with mental health issues. They wouldn't come out that night. We were trying to stop them getting out the doors, you know, and we were just totally overwhelmed. Um, so in the end, we phoned the police and just said, you know, we don't we don't really know what else to do. You're going to have to come out here. They, but but, but um, you're really trying to 
call somebody else besides the police. You're trying to resolve this without law enforcement, it sounds like. We didn't really know. We were just trying to sort of resolve the situation and they just wouldn't calm down. We're screaming at us. I mean, we've got neighbors as well. And, you know, we said, we'll take you home. They were like, no, no, we don't want to go home. The window's been smashed. We're like, well, you know, well, maybe we'll leave. But then it wasn't safe because obviously there's two vulnerable people in the house. Mm-hmm. So we, we phoned the police. The police came. They sort of calmed the situation down a bit and then they went to bed. And then the next day, uh, Luke phoned up the outreach team and the care company they, ha- they have coming in the house, told them what had happened, told them he'd had to restrain his mother. And then we thought no more of it. They went home. The window got fixed. And we thought, well, I mean, obviously things aren't great, but maybe things will go back to normal now. And then about a week later, we got a call saying, uh, there's been an allegation. Uh, Your mother's got bruises on her. We need to do a full investigation. We almost felt completely demonized. I mean, we'd be completely honest about what happened. And Luke had to tell his employers. Uh, we stayed away from the family because we didn't know if we were allowed to see them. Were you and it was that, just were, were they blaming you for doing it? Basically, yeah. I mean, they were insinuating that, yeah, it didn't feel right. They were insinuating that something had happened and that he'd, he'd been aggressive towards his mother, basically, okay. right. which wasn't the case at all. Yeah. So we were like, oh, my goodness, maybe we should just stay away and, and hope it calms down. And we were never told, no one ever told us the result of that until about three weeks later when we said, so what happened with the investigation? They went, oh, yeah, it was unsubstantiated. And then it was kind of like, no bother. And we'd gone through all this stress of like, oh, God, they think we're awful people, even though we've been completely honest about it. But we were made to feel really kind of hadn't handled it properly. Mm-hmm. So anyway, two weeks after this incident of them coming around and having to call the police, uh, we went away for a week with my mother and we got a call saying Luke's mother was going to be sectioned and put into hospital, um, which is terrible timing. We weren't there. And I was quite naive about it, really, to be honest. I thought, obviously, she is having a bit of a breakdown. Maybe she does need some time in hospital. Maybe it will be for the best mm-hmm. and it will give us some time to recuperate and then she'll come out. And Luke sort of freaked out because she's been in hospital before and it was terrible. Yeah. So... I was wrong. <laughs> I'm just uh, like for the end of the story. Spoiler alert. Yeah, but you were I, naive. I was you wrong. Were... I was naive. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you don't know any better, and you you know that you can't handle the situation. You know that this is yeah. out of your control. You're not a healthcare professional, so you're thinking, yeah, she's she's out of control. She needs help, and this is help, mm-hmm. right? You know, I get yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah. Basically, and um, there hadn't been any more incidents since the time she'd come to ours but I did kind of think well that was pretty bad and I hadn't seen someone in that state before Mm -hmm. I just think if that happens again I don't really know what I'd do so she ended up getting taken into a mental health ward on her 60th birthday so you know not not a very nice day you know it's a big birthday we wanted to celebrate but she's taken into hospital um and the reasons that they said was that she was a risk and unable to take care of herself so that she needed to be somewhere safe Mm-hmm. And you'd think, being on a ward, that she would be somewhere safe, but it gets it gets worse. Uh, on the ward, I, honestly, I couldn't believe it. If I'd have gone in as a sane person, it would have driven me mad. <laughs> um, it was horrible. I mean, it was it was boring. There was nothing to do all day long. What did it look um, like? Like, was there people in the hallways? Did everyone have their own rooms? Like, what was the the layout? 
you had to I mean you had to come in the main reception you had to tell them there who you were and then you had to walk along about four corridors there's about four locking doors you had to go through then you'd go in um there was like a big communal area in the middle where either no one would be sitting or everyone would be sitting for some reason um there were people shouting from morning till night all the time there people just wandering around people would just come and just sort of stare at you and I understand it is it's the place for people who need to be sectioned for a good reason and it's never going to be nice but it felt like the staff had no control over anything and it wasn't it wasn't relaxing we had other residents there in in the sort of the the communal areas saying if my mother was in the situation that your mother's in I wouldn't want to hear they were people who were a danger to themselves and had made suicide attempts and my mother-in-law's never never run out of the house, never gone wandering off, never tried to hurt herself. Mm. And we were like, is this really is this really the best place for her? Um, she was left to sleep all day. Um, so she got bed sores. So she was spending about 20 hours a day in bed. Um, we weren't allowed to take her off site without a staff member. So we couldn't take her out away from the hospital for a break. We were allowed to take her to the coffee shop at the hospital sometimes, but not others depending on what the doctors had written on their notes. So at one point, they'd written down one week, she can go out the ward, but she can only go out with her carer, Claire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we arrived and said, can we take her out? And they said, well, you can, but she can only go with her carer, Claire. And we're like, well, she's not working today. And they said, well, if you can phone the care company and find another carer called Claire, then we can let her out. And we're like, this is ridiculous. That's... So we're phoning the care company saying, have you got anyone else called Claire? You know, can she come and... Can we so we can take our mother-in-law for a cup of tea? It was, it was like a sitcom, really. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. Every time we went, we'd be waiting around for about an hour, so that we could find out if we could take her out that day. While they had a discussion about the notes, she was covered in bruises all the time, and she was moved to another ward. And she's always sort of made a lot of allegations against men. Um, she was moved to another ward with male staff, and we said, no, this isn't going to work. Uh, it was a mixed ward. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, 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 it'll be fine. About two days later, they moved her back because she made allegations against all the male members of staff. So yeah. again, just ignoring what family was saying. She was on these wards for about six months. So, I mean, that's a long period of time to, to be stuck there. And we didn't know why she was there. We're like, are you doing tests? Are you waiting for something? Like, What is the plan here? Yeah, what what is the um, treatment actually? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Because nothing was, it, she was just there. We were like, nothing's being done. What, what is the point? Um, we actually had a tribunal um, where Luke discussed with, um, I guess, like an independent person, why she was there and what he wanted to happen. And he said he wanted to move back. So he'd move out from living with me, move back in with his mother and his sister. And he'd look after her until they decided what was going on. Um, because he didn't want her on the ward anymore. And we won the tribunal. They approved it. And straight after the tribunal, the social worker just said, oh, well, well, it's great you've done that, but here's another bit of legislation to say she's got to stay in the hospital. So she just whipped out some of the bit of paperwork and said, yeah, but we're using this instead now. Turns out that is illegal. Um, and we're all actually investigating that. But it was like, sorry, you, here's, you, you know, you've won something. You've, you've given her an opportunity and it's just whipped straight away from under us. So, let me see so that was can i just recap real quick here so yeah of course they're, yeah they're not allowing you to see her even though interacting with you and maybe getting out and about getting out of bed is 
probably way more therapeutic for her than sitting in bed. Yeah, um, yeah. And you warn them not to put them in a mixed ward where, where male orderlies or whatever are there. They disregarded you and figured it out pretty quick that that was a bad idea. Yeah. And then you are able to get a passage of her to be released to you, but then they say, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Okay. I mean, it gets worse, Justin, so okay, no problem. <laughs> just brace yourself. But um, <laughs> it, I, it, was, it was awful. I, I mean, it was awful. I mean, it still is awful, but it was awful. Um, and it was just heartbreaking because she, this is a woman who doesn't communicate well, doesn't doesn't have conversations with people. I mean, she's not... She, you can ask her about her life, but she it's not a two-way conversation and it's very one-sided and it's, she's, I mean, she was getting no interaction with people. She can't amuse herself. She can't sit and watch TV. She can't follow things. She can sit and do a jigsaw with someone's help or do some colouring, but um, just the neglect that she had in the hospital when we've been told that she had to go in there for her own safety mm-hmm. was just ridiculous because she's just being left all day every day we i mean we were just sick of this after six months and we said are you going to find somewhere and they the social worker told us there were no care homes that were suitable she'd gone to see three they're all awful and that she couldn't find a place so as soon as we start looking within about a week we found a care home around the corner from the hospital of course yeah. uh, with space so we we insisted and she moved into there um and I thought that would make things a lot better, but it just brought around a lot of different problems, to be honest. So the bruises when she was in the care home continued to appear. We were allowed to take her out, Luke and I. Um, Luke's sister was not allowed to take her off the premise, basically because she'd known the person who'd smashed the window on the house. And that continued for two years. So for two years, her daughter, not with learning difficulties, Luke's sister, who's got two children of her own, was not allowed to take her out on her own. I mean, I don't, I didn't understand that. They reassessed that eventually, but it was completely unfair. And I think that's probably the person that she's got the best relationship with as well. She was stuck in the home a lot. um, And we'd take her out when we could, but obviously we both work. Luke's sister also, because of all these bruises that were appearing her in the home, she made a complaint and the reaction of the home was, right, every little bruise we find, we're going to do a full-scale investigation. And every time family does take her out, we're going to do a body map of her, which is basically where they strip off all her clothes and they log all the new bruises that have appeared on her. And it just felt like they were trying to catch us out <laughs> all the time. So were they, um, they're, they're suspecting that you're beating her? This is the whole point? Is they're trying to catch abuse? I don't know. I mean... That's what I kept saying. I was like, do they really think that we're coming to spend time with her and take her out just so we can beat her in public? I mean, I mean, we're a teacher and he works in social services. We're almost like the dream children to have that would take her out and be supportive. And we, you know, we've had all the checks and, you know, we're nice people. And we felt completely like we were under suspicion all the time. I mean, I think it was just a reaction to the fact that we'd raised concerns about the numbers of bruises on her and they were almost like, well, we're going to prove it's not us by proving it's you. But it, obviously it wasn't us. I, I, was, I just felt awful. I, it made me not want to see her, to be honest, because I was like, the more we insist that we want to see her, does that make us look more guilty? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely discouraging. And on the flip side, if you 
are beating her, then why the hell would they ever let you let her go out with you? It's it's some weird thing. Yeah. Honestly, never been treated with that much suspicion in my life yeah. <laughs> for wanting to take my mother-in-law with Luke out for coffee. And every time they did find a bruise on her, which, I mean, they they do a body map literally after we return. So, I mean, I don't know how quickly bruises show up, but they'd they'd sort of try and link it to us. And they'd stop visits then and say, right, you can't see her then. So it'd be a week or so that no one was allowed to see her apart from the care staff. And, and, um, and also you don't want to see her because she's having to be humiliated and do a body map just to leave the hospital. I mean, that's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it was just totally degrading for her. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to give in. We still want to take her out. I mean, we're going to public places, not sort of taking her off to like our house. And it's got to the point where we were like, do you just want us to wear CCTV all the time? Because we'll do that. Because mm-hmm. we don't really know what else to say. Um, and they were like, no, don't be ridiculous. But <laughs> that's what it felt like. <laughs> I was like, because, you know, if you want us to, we can, but... I mean, that's less evasive than doing a full body map. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technically. Um, so Luke's sister, when she was visiting, she was grabbed by another resident at the care home who also had needs. Um, and she made a complaint against that. Mm-hmm. And then their reaction to that was, right, well, when you come and see your mother-in-law or Luke's mum, when you come and visit her you've got to stay in one certain room now and you're not allowed to leave that room. So now when we visit her, we had to knock on the main door. They'd say, okay, it's you guys, go round. They'd let us in a separate entrance that goes straight into this little room with no windows. We have to sit in there and spend time with her in there um, because they don't want us to go in the house, in the home with the residents because one of them had grabbed Luke's sister that was the extent of our contact within the home. It was this little tiny room with no windows that had a red carpet and red walls. I just, I, I never want to go back there. It was horrible. And you'd have a member of staff just sitting outside the door writing notes while we were there. But they can have I a member couldn't... of staff to keep an eye on everyone to make sure that they don't grab or attack people. <laughs> just, I don't know. <laughs> just... I, I, I mean, I don't understand it. I don't mm. understand the logic. It was like common sense was just gone. Mm. Like no one had any. And the social worker, you know, we'd make complaints to her and you think, oh, come on, someone with some training, with some common sense. And she just sort of took their side or didn't really get want to get involved, didn't want to have those awkward conversations. So she'd say, oh, well, you know, it's just procedure. It's just investigating or... That was awful because we were like, well, it's not that we're worried that we're going to get hurt because, you know, she's in there with the rest of the residents the rest of the time. You know, if they're grabbing people, resolve the issue of people grabbing people. Don't just keep us away from them as if they're unsafe to us. Yeah. Uh, So eventually the care home got tired of us as a family (laughs) and said, right, she's she's got to leave in a month and basically booted her out and said we've had enough. Which you'd think if they genuinely thought they were concerned for her safety or that we were bad people, that's not something that they do. But they kind of, I think they were just trying to make a point by then and just say, right, well, she's out. We found the next care home because no one else did anything again, which is the one she's at now, which is about an hour from where we live. But it's nearer to her daughter that she used to live with with learning difficulties. And she goes with a carer to visit her sometimes. And this one is... A bit better in some ways. We don't have the issue with the bruises anymore. That's gone. They don't do body maps all the time and family contact isn't restricted. So we can 
take her out for a coffee we can go around we can we can visit with her whenever um and that's so much better well, I because know, we can actually spend time with her i know bruises happen especially as you get older people can bruise very easily but the bruising isn't isn't an issue anymore for me my reaction is was somebody at the other hospital doing something to her or the other care center where i mean was she being abused if there's no bruises anymore that just sticks out to me i don't know yeah i mean that's that's the question we asked and the reaction was we've got two members of staff with her whenever we have any personal care with her we log everything mm-hmm. so it can't be us <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, what do you say in response to that i mean if they're essentially collecting evidence you can't really I mean, there is no response to that, really, I guess. But We've already checked um, ourselves and it's not us. <laughs> so. Yeah, basically. She does bruise easily. And I, I don't know if, I mean, it was just kind of some, something that happened. But I mean, it, she definitely has fewer bruises now. So, I mean, there must be something that they're doing differently. Yeah, maybe it's different um, medication or something. Because some medications yeah. make you bruise easy. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We have still got issues with this care home at the moment in that, uh, no matter what time of day we phone up and say, can we take her out? She's in bed, <laughs> basically. So the other day we phoned at 12.30. Oh, no, she's still in bed. We'll just get her up now. Mm-hmm. Uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, she's still in her pajamas. She's being neglected to an extent. Yeah, I mean, they should be taking her out for physical therapy, just having some sort of group effort where everyone gets together even if it's just for lunch you know like if she's yeah. if she's capable of getting up there's no reason to feed her in bed make her go to the cafeteria make her go to the kitchen whatever it is i mean you would think yeah absolutely and also she never she never did that when she lived at home and their argument was she's not safe and she can't look after her own needs and she's neglecting her own needs but she's in a care home and they're neglecting her needs now. And at least when she was living at home, she had one-to-one carers coming in and saying, right, you're getting up now and this is what we're doing today. And she'd make her own lunch and she'd wash up afterwards and she'd tidy the house because those were her responsibilities. And all those responsibilities are completely gone now. So she's just being fed. She doesn't have any responsibility. She can't even make herself a cup of tea in the home. They'll do that for her. And yet, apparently, she's safer and more independent. And I I don't... It's ridiculous, to be honest. (laughs) This Um, has struck a chord because my my mother's in a physical... Was in a physical therapy rehabilitation center because she'd broken her, her hip and stuff. And they are supposed to bring her her pain meds all the time. And they would not bring them at the same time every day. They would just bring them whenever. So then my mom started kind of hoarding them, like acting like she was taking them and then, you know, shuffling them away in a drawer and then taking them as needed because when she needed them, they weren't around. And when she didn't need them, they were feeding her pain pills. So it was like, well, wait a second. (laughs) She's incapable of moving on her own and taking care of herself. You need to administer these pain pills as needed yet they it was just all over the place so i'm feeling your frustration right now about yeah (laughs) you know i think that is the number one thing it is incredibly frustrating when people are telling you what's best and you're seeing it and you're saying this isn't the best and then you're completely ignored or you know seen as causing a problem for voicing your opinion 
So, I, I mean, again, we've got the problem where she is now that she can't entertain herself. Yeah. She's bored. I mean, they don't even put the tally on for her. Not that she'd really enjoy watching it in any real sense. But, uh, you know, we buy her jigsaws, we buy her baking packets and things, and no one ever does anything with her. I mean, she's in a kind of like an old people's home, I guess you'd say. So she's in a place where there's a lot of older people around her mm-hmm. who don't have the capacity to do things day to day you'd think it would kind of free the staff up to spend a bit more time with her but they're not interested even when we're there they don't even put on a show of being interested oh, it's kind of like yeah kind of like oh she we've been told that she hasn't got the capacity to look after herself make her own decisions and yet she's being given the responsibility to get herself out of bed and decide when she goes to bed and decide how long she spends in bed yeah. when isn't that the point that she can't make those decisions so let, let me clarify something here so the state has said she is no longer able to take care of herself so they have sectioned her or made her go live in a facility yeah she Um, i mean she's legally under the care of the state now so she they've said she can't look after herself and the situation she was in before wasn't meeting her needs Mm -hmm. so therefore we've stepped in and sort of forced her into the situation where her needs are being met i mean she's been adamant the whole time i want to go home that's what she said the whole time are you having to pay for any of this facility no, okay. no. I mean, the only thing we kept, we paid for was that when she was in the hospital, we were so concerned about her care mm-hmm. and the neglect she was experiencing in the mental health ward that actually we paid for carers to go in yeah. and get her up and get her ready, which the irony is <laughs> sort of through the roof there yeah. that they've taken her into this facility for her care and that the care is not being there. So we, we're paying for someone to go in and provide that care. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's, I mean, we're we're laughing because it's just unbelievable right now. <laughs> yeah. You know. I mean, you either laugh or you cry, yeah. um, and I've done both many times. I mean, the situation now is that she's in this care home. I don't think it's meeting her needs. Um, and they've said we're going to move her to a sister home that is owned by the same people. Now, obviously, we've got concerns with this sister home, considering that where she is now isn't meeting her needs. So I don't see how another home's going to do that better. But I mean, we visited a home around the corner from where she is now um, that has one-to-one support workers all day. So they've got the capacity to have a member of staff with her all day. And that would, I think, give her the chance to go out, go to the shops, go for a coffee, do jigsaws, do drawing, painting. Because if someone's there, a member of staff there all the time, they can invest that time into her. Um, the social workers said no. They've said they don't think it's um, they don't think it's a good place for her to go because um, the other residents are too high need and she won't form high level relationships with them. I mean, considering the fact that I went to the care home she's at now at the weekend and waited for an hour and watched a woman lying in a chair who's basically kind of not really aware of her surroundings, being shouted at by another resident for about 40 minutes, sort of waving a sandwich in her face saying, please eat it. And I don't know why they're being left kind of to interact in that way anyway. So, um, again, the decision's been taken out of our hands. It's been overruled. The people who care about her most are completely ignored. We've written court statements. We've made complaints. 
And it's just got to the point we think no one cares. <laughs> That's the thing with, yeah. with a lot of these places is you can't let progress get in the way of uh, process. <laughs> and, and the process yeah. is what it is, and they're going to adhere to it. I mean, you would think that stimulus, interaction, socializing, physical therapy would all be on the agenda, but apparently they're not. No, I mean, I, those things cost money, I guess, and they're the first things to go when you make cuts. But, I mean, it was sustainable how it was before she was sectioned. Mm -hmm. And she had a much better quality of life in terms of her being in more control of her environment. And she had carers that actually did care about her because they saw her every week. Mm -hmm. You know, we invited one of them to our wedding later this year because, you know, she was so involved with the family and it's just such a shame that it's it's all changed because someone was trying to do the right thing or the state felt they had to get involved. And mm -hmm. I feel like she's just been a victim, really. Yeah, I, I guess this might just be a difference between there and America. But here, the state really doesn't want to pay for anything. They don't want to put you anywhere. They would rather hand it off to the family to deal with. Yeah. Her living at home, as long as, you know, they could send a a visiting nurse every day or something, but it's up to the family to really provide more and, and take care of somebody. And, and I think really most people, they would prefer to live out their final days at home when they're older and whatnot. Mm. It's, it's better for them. It's healthier for them. And, and if they, if you have to put them in a home, which is inevitable first for a lot of people, at least have, like all those things we've mentioned, you know, stimulus, interaction, socialization, just something instead of just letting yeah. them rot away in a room with nothing. And then you're going there to provide this stimulation. You're going there to try to give them something to look forward to. And then it's, it's looked down upon like they're, they're not allowing you to come see this person when you're probably the the highlight of their day and that's really sad yeah they say oh well she you know she spends time with the carers and but it's not the same no. it's not the same as having your family around and people who actually know you and know your history and care about you yeah she's i mean she's not my mother but obviously i've had this much involvement in her life now that i kind of you know i'll do what i can for her but obviously it's worse for my partner because you know, it's his mother and, and he knew her before a breakdown and I know that she was, you know, she'd do anything for anyone. And, she, you know, she's brought up four children. I don't know, she's just kind of locked away now, it feels a little bit. Yeah. And isolated from from those children. But you as a human can sympathize with somebody regardless. And you know if you <laughs> were in her situation, how you would want to be treated or expect to be treated. And it's probably shocking to you. And, and now knowing that just because somebody's, become a ward of the state and now the state's taking care of them you'd think that they're being provided for but it's it's a shocking realization that it's not always true yeah i mean it has been quite an eye-opener for me because i did kind of think oh you know a care home would be lovely for us have people around you know should be should be interacting with other people it'd feel like a busy welcoming environment and now i see the whole process of mental health and care and care homes in a completely different way because of the experiences we've had I mean it's all balancing books and making money and taking on residents and 
Yeah, every care home we've been to has got an owner with a lovely nice car. <laughs> I, I always think of that that Pink Floyd video, brick in the wall, when there's like the meat grinder and they're just shoving the kids through it. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's just this cattle call. It's just push them through and there's no real humanity to it. And I think it needs to change. I think they need to yeah. have new policies. Um, I know... I nitpicked where my mom was for, for simple things, but now hearing your story, wow, my mom was in a five-star resort compared to what your step was. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even complain now. What's her care home um, like in terms of like day-to-day? -day? Do they do a lot of stuff? Yeah, uh, because she was there because she had fallen and broken so many bones because she's older, uh, they were forcing her to get out of bed and do physical therapy you know they have a tv there for her to watch all day long and um the my biggest complaints is when she would hit the button to call a nurse or an orderly whoever would show up first it didn't matter you when you hit the button it could have been the janitor and then the janitor would figure out what do you need and then they would go and find somebody and it could be up to an hour before somebody would respond. So I was uh, like, I was thinking, well, if you fell down and hit the button, the, it could be 15, 20 minutes before someone shows up. Mm, and then, and then yeah. they realize that you've fallen and broken your hip. And for the most part, though, they they were very nice. They, they would ask her because she was injured. They were like, if you want to eat in bed today, we'll allow it. But tomorrow we really want you to get out of bed and get in your wheelchair and go down and eat in the cafeteria so they really yeah. they really forced her to get out of bed and interact but they had jigsaw puzzles in common areas and and nobody had a an assigned seat in the cafeteria and every day it would just be they would fill the tables up so the first table would be open the first person that would sit down the next person that would show up they'd force them to sit down at the same table and it kind of made you force you to mingle with other guests you know or other people that were staying there and i can't, they... i mean they're not all terrible luke's luke's granddad was a, um a care home he passed away last year but he was in a um a care home that was for people who'd been in the armed services yeah. and it was fantastic i mean the staff were so nice they had people coming in volunteering they had things going on every day and he didn't really get that involved in in a lot of it because he was you know 93 by the time he'd gone into the care home and he was actually you know quite frail but yeah. um my mother-in-law would love to be in a place like that but it's just the funding's not there in, in this, um, this place my mom was at i was paying for <laughs> you know, right. it was yeah a, that's the difference yeah. isn't it it was 161 dollars a day which doesn't sound that my bad goodness. but she was there for a month yeah so you can do the math and now you know how much yeah. i spent on my mom but if, if she would have gone to a state-run place I'm sure it would not have been what I paid for. And the only reason why I was nitpicking yeah. was because I was paying for it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, of course. You know, I've seen some of the other, they call them senior living homes or nursing homes. And I've seen some of the ones that are more state run or low budget or low income. And they're horrifying. You, you see, yeah. you know, old people that are just sitting in a wheelchair in the hallway and two hours later, you walk by again, and they haven't moved. And it's just like, oh, yeah. my gosh. And the whole place smells like urine, and just people are yelling. And I 
I've been to those places and I was like, my mom's not going to one of those places. Even if it's going to cost me thousands of dollars, I'm not putting her in a place like that. <laughs> it's just, it's not <laughs> yeah. going to happen. So. I mean, that, I, that's kind of the place. Yeah. That's kind of where she is at the moment, but mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I, I guess they're kind of like worst case scenario, but she, you know, she's not, she doesn't need to be in a wheelchair and she, you know, she can walk around and look after herself. And I just don't think she needs to be yeah. somewhere like that to be on it i think when, if she could be at home with carers coming in i mean it'd cost them less yeah. she'd be so much happier what's the worst that could happen really that she i mean she's not going to go running off i don't think no that and, someone breaks in i mean that could happen to anyone else couldn't it you know people live alone all the time i mean i somebody <laughs> could break into my house right now that doesn't mean i need to go live in a home yeah <laughs> you know yeah but, yeah <laughs> and i think that's the logic that they're using that oh well you know, someone smashed a window, that could happen again. Well, someone could smash my window. Yeah. But, you know, and I could be home alone. Things happen. You can't put everyone in protection because of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it if they really, truly feel she can't provide for herself. But if that's the case, shouldn't there be the first step, send somebody out to the home every other day or once a week to check and see how she's doing, or even daily if need be. And if she isn't meeting whatever criteria, then pull her out, then take custody of her and stick her in a place. But I would think that there would be steps to work up to that point. And apparently there isn't. No, I mean, they've had, they've written reports and things, but it depends, they go and interview her, but these people don't know her. They've met her for, what, 20 minutes for an interview and then they leave. And depending on the day that she's having, Mm -hmm. she could be having a good day, she could be having a bad day. And I mean, that's the nature with mental health and they'll just get completely different responses from her. So, I mean, whoever it is, whatever kind of day day she has, she always says, I want to go home. She's adamant with that. She has been the whole whole way through, which is the most heartbreaking thing, I think. I was going to say, I mean, she's conscious enough to know what she wants and that that enough that in itself (laughs) should say hey you know she she might be okay at home and is there anything that allows her to go home like i mean i know you're you're filing papers and reports and stuff but does she have to meet some sort of criteria so she can go back home is that even an option or i mean i think they've ruled it out i mean they've they've done assessments i mean they've asked family members but i don't think I don't think what we say makes any difference to their final assessments, I think. But um, I think there is a court case soon just to make a final decision. But I mean, that throws up a whole other host of problems because her two daughters with learning difficulties are living in the house that she used to live in, which is a council-owned property. So if the final decision is, yes, she's staying in care forever, I mean, they're effectively homeless and get turfed out as well. So I guess they're coming to live with me. (laughs) What what do you want people to know? Like, what what is the final? Just you just want to put it out there so people know that hey, maybe think twice before you know. I mean, I I don't know if I've got any advice. For, if anyone's got advice for me, that'd probably be the better <laughs> way around because yeah. I guess I want people to know that mental health is just completely underfunded, and there's so many people who are becoming victims. Sectioning someone isn't always the answer and people going into care of the state isn't always the answer and um, um, there should be more advocates and people that you could contact and more support out there for people like us who are trying to care for someone and don't feel like we're getting enough support from social workers and the care homes and I don't know I just think there should be something else happening gives us another voice 
it's such a catch-22 because here in America, I wish there was more help. I wish there was some place that people could go. There, there isn't much, and you, you have to do a lot of research before you'll find a place that is state-funded and then fill out a ton of paperwork, and then really you might be getting the bottom-of-the-barrel facility compared to if you have money, you can pay for them to go stay somewhere and yeah. then it works out a little bit better at least. But oh, mm. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep fighting and we'll, uh, hopefully things will get better. Yeah. So, um, tell me about your podcast. What do you do? <laughs> we, uh, it's me and my friend Emma. I've known her about twenty years, uh-huh. and um, we talk about UK true crime. Uh-huh. So we uh, we've looked at Dennis Nielsen, John Christie, that I know was on Generation Y recently as well. Yeah, well, I just covered him. Yep. So we look at, uh, I mean, serial killers, but also uh, we've looked at some con men, and we basically just talk about them and uh, drink tea. <laughs> and make jokes, nice. make inappropriate jokes. Um, I'm, I'm much more serious on your podcast than I would ever be on on mine. No, um, that's good. Yeah, no, it's good fun. But we're um, s apostrophe laughter or slaughter, however you want to say, or slaughter if you want to be yeah. the most British. Um, <laughs> and we're we're on uh, all the podcasting places anyway. Awesome, that's cool. I love it. <laughs> I'll be checking it out. Anything else did you want to talk about before? <laughs> Anything else about um, your I didn't know. If you, if you... No, I mean, if anyone's got any advice uh, who kind of has been through this before, I'd love them to get in touch and, and give me some advice if they can. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wish I uh, could give you some advice, but I'm under totally different government. So, <laughs> yeah. No. But uh, yeah. So, yeah, that they should uh, hit me up and. Tell me what to do with my life <laughs> to protect my mother-in-law. Not not like general life decisions. Like I'm that sorted. But I'll t- I'll take general life decisions if anyone wants to call me. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for sharing, and um, it's, it's awesome to listen to you and 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 hear your hear your story. So lovely to speak to you. Thanks very much. Hey, this is Kayla, Justin's niece. We want to thank all of the guests that have come on the peripheral, and we want to thank everyone for listening. Easter is just around the corner, and what better way to celebrate the spring season than with a Mickey Couture blanket? Whether you're gathering with family for an Easter egg hunt or just enjoying a quiet day at home, Minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Easter festivities. Made with ultra-soft and luxurious materials, these blankets will keep you cozy and comfortable, while their stylish designs will add a touch of spring to your day. And with a wide range of colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Minky blanket for everyone. So this Easter, make your day even brighter with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for Easter. Happy Easter from Minky Couture.